Well, good morning once again. Um, Welcome to Jordan Valley Church. My name is Wes Holmes, one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be worshiping our good God with you this morning. Uh, We pick back up after our Advent series back in the book of Luke. We started the book of Luke last year, and we are continuing on this morning uh, in Luke chapter 9. So if you'd like to turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 9, Uh, we'll be looking together at verses 18 uh, to 27. So Luke 9, 18 to 27. And this is the word of the Lord. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. It sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do need to hear from you this morning. Uh, Even the hard words that you have for us, uh, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you want to show us and teach us. And most of all, Lord, we pray you would show us the glory of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the worthiness uh, of following and knowing and loving him, and being loved by him. So speak, O Lord, this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer who famously said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, whether you agree with that or not, it certainly does give us something to think about something to consider. Because in light of our passage this morning, it's clear that Jesus wanted himself to be known, for his disciples to know him. He wanted them to know the truth about who he is and and what he had come to do. In fact, he defined the essence of eternal life as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? Luke records this interaction between Jesus and his disciples on the heels of this uh, miraculous feeding of the 5,000. If you remember that scene, the disciples witnessed this amazing event and knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was something special about Jesus. You have to wonder what was going through their minds. Who is this man who can feed a giant crowd with nothing but five loaves and two fish? 
And maybe you're here this morning asking the same question. In this message, there will be three questions that we're going to ask together about Jesus as we consider what Luke records here. So first, who is he? Second, what did he do? And third, will you follow him? And this is what I want you to know as we consider the testimony of Luke together, that Jesus is the Messiah who came to live, to die, and to rise again so that we could follow him into the kingdom of God. Jesus is that Messiah who came to live, die, and rise again so that we could follow him into the kingdom of God. So let's look at the first question. Who is he? It's interesting, isn't it, how Jesus first asked his disciples the question on behalf of the crowds. Verse 18, who do the crowds say I am? Apparently, there was a wide range of opinions on the matter, even among those who were following Jesus. So the disciples gave throughout some answers, things that they had heard. In fact, these are the same things that Herod the Tetrarch had also heard earlier and had repeated about Jesus in, in verses 7 and 8. Some say John, others Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets of old has come back to life. Now, one thing I want to point out is that come back to life, the Greek word for that is actually better translated as arisen. Uh, we shouldn't think that uh, people believe that John had literally been raised from the dead because at that point he had just been recently beheaded. Um, or should we think that Elijah was somehow reincarnated or uh, you know, he had been taken up into heaven by chariots of fire and a whirlwind? No, this wasn't the idea in people's minds. But there was a growing expectation that God would send or raise up a great prophet, a messenger, to lead his people into true and lasting peace. So people being excited that, you know, maybe this is the one, they saw Jesus as someone great. But they didn't yet understand just exactly who he was. And this is still true today, isn't it? Many people see something special, something amazing even about Jesus, but they miss his true identity. In 1942, C.S. Lewis popularized the now famous trilemma about how we are to think about Jesus. And for those uh, who don't know what this is, it's um, for, for people who are looking to Jesus and saying, look, here's a great moral teacher. Here's a wonderful moral uh, prophet even but he's really just a man, Lewis would say, you're actually saying something really foolish. Because the argument goes like this. You can't say that Jesus was just a man or some great religious teacher because his constant and clear claims to be the divine son of God preclude that opinion. We have only three options. Either what he was a liar, successfully deceiving many into thinking that he was God in the flesh, or he was a crazed lunatic, proclaiming himself to be God in some stunning delusion. Or thirdly, he is who he actually says he is, Christ the Lord. Now you may be saying, those aren't the only options. Well, what if the Bible is simply misrepresenting Jesus? You know, what if his followers turned him into some sort of legend of divine proportions? But I ask you, what ancient legend is like the Bible? Presenting a story based on eyewitness accounts, historically grounded with such specific and unexpected details. 
See, in our passage, Jesus turns the question of who he is to his followers, and then we read the confession of Peter in verse 20. Peter answered, you are God's Messiah, the Christ, the expected one, right? The one we have all been hoping for. Peter got it. But did he? I mean, really? I mean, certainly Peter recognized with the crowds that Jesus was special. He was unique even. Um, Not just one of the prophets, but the Christ. And then, oddly, right after Peter's profound confession of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus strictly warned them to tell this to no one. This is odd. (laughs) Why? I mean, if Jesus really is the Son of God, He's the Messiah that the people of Israel have been waiting for all these long centuries. Why not shout it from the rooftops? Well, Jesus doesn't give the reason here, but there's at least a couple possibilities. First, the understanding that his disciples had was less than clear, (laughs) and they would likely misrepresent who Jesus was and what he came to do to others. And we see this in Matthew's account, where Peter, immediately after this confession, tells Jesus that he must not surely die, and he misses the exact purpose for which Jesus came. And secondly, Jesus was also well aware of the hostility of the Jewish and Roman authorities against him. And he didn't want the disciples stirring the pot too much before it was his time. But it's these kinds of details, right, that tell you, you know, what Jesus said in the Bible is is far different than any sort of legendary tale. And so I ask you, who do you say he is? And that leads us into the second question. What did he do? What did he do? Because who he is ties in intimately to what he did. And, And Jesus, to everyone's surprise, gives a particularly difficult teaching right after Peter's confession of him as the Messiah. He says this, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is not what the people had expected the Messiah to come and do. But Jesus is clearly connecting his suffering his rejection, and his death to his role as the Christ, the anointed one of God. If you're familiar with Jesus, take a moment to just let the oddness of this sink in. The king of heaven came to earth, not to establish an earthly kingdom or to to free his people from Roman oppression, but to face suffering at the hands of sinful men, to be rejected by the religious leaders and even his own friends, and ultimately to die a shameful death by crucifixion. Let's unpack a little bit more the what of this, and then we'll consider the why together. Jesus came to suffer and die. The Messiah was to be a suffering servant, according to the prophet Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 53 is perhaps the clearest depiction of what theologians have called the passive obedience of Christ, where he writes this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. However, it's also frequently missed that though Jesus' sufferings culminated on the cross, his suffering extended beyond his crucifixion, or even his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. He suffered his whole life. All the same kinds of suffering that you and I face in this fallen world, Jesus has faced it. He was rejected by men, by many people, even among his own immediate family members. He was mocked throughout his earthly ministry, called a child born of immorality, called a demon-possessed man. Jesus, the Son of God, in his passive obedience to the Father's will, suffered greatly his whole life, but especially in his death. Because the death of Jesus was central to his messianic purpose. He had to die. Jesus said it right here. The Son of Man must be killed. Friends, death is a curse upon mankind. It is not a natural thing in the truest sense of the word. Neither is it, is it a part of the circle of life. Death is a horrible curse from God upon humanity. It brings grief. It brings sorrow. It brings fear. It marks the end of all of our earthly hopes and dreams. People don't like to talk about death, including myself, because it is so uncomfortable. But the reality is that all of us will take our final breath at some point. What do you do with that difficult fact? Maybe try not to think about it, bury it under entertainment and distractions, just work and strive to live healthy and, and hope the day never comes. Friends, there's only one lasting hope for us in the face of death. And it is the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah for us. Because not only did Jesus face death, but he was physically raised from the grave by the power of God on the third day. Death was not the end of Jesus' story. He lives, friends, today. His disciples literally walked and talked and ate with him after he died and was raised. Jesus conquered the grave, and today he lives and reigns in heaven until that day that he comes again to judge the world and make all things new. Because of his life of perfect obedience to the law, which is also called his active obedience, Jesus was the acceptable and spotless sacrifice that God required. And so he was raised to everlasting life, overcoming the horrible curse upon humanity as the God-man Messiah. But what does all this have to do with you and me? Here we are on the eve of 2024. Well, first, we have to recognize that Jesus didn't come merely, merely to be an example of good morals. He didn't come just to show us the way to eternal life. He didn't even come to be a martyr for his cause. Jesus came to save our lives. Because Jesus is the way to eternal life. He performed his passive and active obedience perfectly 
in our place. He suffered what we should suffer. He lived the way we should live. And on that cross, he satisfied the anger of God against our sin, fulfilling all of the law's requirements on our behalf as our substitute, as our representative. Jesus died and was raised so that even though you and I die, we shall live. This is the hope that we have, that Jesus' messianic work gives us lasting hope. Because it's the only hope in the world that overcomes the sting of death. And he did it for sinners like you and me. Do you believe this? If you do, there's a natural so what that comes as a result. Now what? And that brings us to our final question. Will you follow him? See, the good news of the gospel calls for a response. And Jesus gives us that call in verses 23 to 25. He said to them, them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Friends, you and I are called to follow Jesus by faith. But most of us don't like the idea of being a follower. We want to be leaders. But here Jesus stands and calls you to follow him. And it isn't an easy call. It's actually a call to come and die. To deny yourself, to take up your cross daily. And what is Jesus getting at here? I mean, he's speaking as one who was about to literally take up his cross and die upon it. But for us, this is a metaphor pointing to Jesus' love, his humility, his willingness to give up his life for the good of others and for the honor of God. You know, why did he do this? He did this to love us, to serve us, and because his father told him to. And perhaps the most clear application of his call to follow him is the call to deny our all-too-natural selfishness. Right? To deny yourself doesn't mean that you should never enjoy anything good or that you have to always be somber and, and serious and maybe even a little downcast. No, that's not what the Christian life is. Denying yourself means that you're willing to say no to your own desires in order to love someone else or to honor the Lord. And that is a rare quality, especially in a culture where everything is tailor-made for your own personal comfort and convenience. Followers of Jesus, are you willing to give up your own preferences, even your worldly enjoyments, to care for someone else? Do you hear the voice of Jesus calling you this morning to lay down your life so that you may truly find it? This is another odd concept, right? You save your life, you lose it. 
You lose your life for Jesus, and you save it. Jesus is making the point that if we look for life in this world, we'll only lose it. We can't take our earthly treasures with us when we die. Jesus wants to convince you and me that this world doesn't offer the life that we're looking for. It's not there. Only in Christ will you find true and lasting life, life that even even death itself cannot take away. Yet this is also where the genuineness of our faith is tested. It's easy for us to say, oh, sure, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I want to follow him. But our faith is shown in how we live. Do you say that you believe in Jesus, but you're actually loving your life in the world more than God? You can't have it both ways, friends. You either lose your earthly life and all that the world has to offer, or you lose Christ and the everlasting life that he offers. So friends, I urge you to cling to Jesus. It's not just a matter of religious preference or, or you know, someone said this and someone else said that. No, this is a matter of judgment and eternity. The Lord even warns us in verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If you reject the call of Jesus now, if you don't trust in the one who alone has the power to save you from your sin, then you will face the justice that your sins deserve, and your life will be lost, not only in this world, but forever. But Jesus welcomes all who come to him in faith, all who are ashamed of their own sins and failures, all who are guilty and know they could never earn God's favor. Remember, Jesus' life was given in the place of yours. His blood is strong enough to wash away all of your guilt. And so Jesus calls you this morning to trust in him, to follow him, and to know the hope of eternal life. For those of you who are trusting in Christ, who are seeking to follow him by faith, this eternal life that he gives, it's an everlasting life in his kingdom. Jesus closes his teaching here in our passage with a surprising statement. He says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Who's that? It kind of sounds like Jesus is saying there's still someone roaming the world today, alive from the first century, waiting to see the kingdom of God. He's somewhere. Well, we missed the point. Jesus, immediately after teaching this, is um, recorded as ascending the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's visibly glorified before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. Christ's glory is the essence of the kingdom of God. To behold the glorious king of heaven, this is eternal life. To know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So friends, if you're following Jesus by faith, though your life in this world will end, 
you will experience a joy and peace unlike anything the world can give in the presence of our glorious Lord and His kingdom forever. And so to conclude, perhaps, perhaps it's not true what A.W. Tozer said, that the most important thing about us is what we think of God. Maybe C.S. Lewis had it right when he said, how God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. And the amazing reality, friends, is that God loves us. He loves us, even to the point that he would die, that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to be our Messiah who came to live, to die, and to rise again so that we could follow him into the kingdom of God. So brothers and sisters, let's follow him into the new year with this gospel hope. Let's pray together. Father, uh, our lives are hard. They are full of suffering. There are joys, moments of, of lightness and, and light, and yet there always seems to be this lingering difficulty of some sort. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you know exactly what that's like. And that our lives here, in the view of eternity, are but a breath. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to lift our eyes to heaven, to remember the hope that we have that though this life will end, Lord Jesus, you will bring us home to a kingdom where we will live in perfect peace and joy and fullness forever. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.